Välkomna till Internationell författarscen. Jag heter Ida Linde. Och jag heter Athena Farrochsad. Och vi ansvarar för litteraturen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Alldeles strax ska ni få höra den sydafrikanska författaren Damon Galgut i samtal med Andreas Norman. Varmt välkomna. Varför inte? Frågar hon förvånat. Därför. Det är inte tillåtet, enligt lag. Enligt lag? Varför? Om du skojar med mig. Men sen tittar han på henne och ser att hon inte alls skojar. Åh herregud, säger han. Har du verkligen ingen aning om vilket land du lever i? Nej, det har hon inte. Amor är tretton år gammal. Historien har ännu inte trampat på henne. Hon har ingen aning om vilket land hon bor i. Hon har sett svarta fly från polisen för att de inte har sina inrikespass med sig. Hon har hört vuxna prata om upplopp i townshipen med låga, allvarliga röster. Och så sent som i förra veckan gjorde de en ny övning där de gömde sig under borden i händelse av en attack. Men hon har fortfarande ingen aning om vilket land hon bor i. Det råder undantagstillstånd och folk grips och tas i förvar utan rättegång och det går en massa rykten men det saknas fakta eftersom nyheterna censureras och det rapporteras bara om glada, overkliga nyheter. Men dessa tror hon oftast på. Hon såg sin bror huvud blöda efter att ha träffats av en sten igår men trots det vet hon fortfarande inte vem som kastade stenen eller varför. Ja, skyllde på blixten. Hon har alltid varit trögfattad, fast en sak oroar henne. Men varför, säger hon, varför sa du till pa att han skulle ge huset till tjänstekvinnan Salomi om du visste att han inte kunde det? Han rycker på axlarna. Därför. För att jag kände för det. Och det är just precis då, på ett minimalt vis och utan att hon själv inser det, som hon börjar förstå vilket land hon lever i. Välkomna till internationell författarscen. Säsongens första program. Ni hörde just skådespelaren Katarina Ekelöv läsa ur löftet av Damon Galgut i en fantastisk översättning av Niklas Wahl, utgiven av Albert Bonniers förlag. Jag heter Ida Linde och är tillsammans med Athena Farouksad de nya kuratorerna för internationell författarscen efter den lysande Ingemar Fast. I kväll har vi äran att presentera just Damon Galgut. Han skrev sin första bok som 17-åring. Tid utan synd kom i svensk översättning 1985 av Thomas Price. Liksom det stora genombrottet Grisars vackra skrik som kom 
1993. Galgut är också verksam som dramatiker. A family that meets at funerals. A narrator that moves fluidly between the different characters and their inner and outer life. When a man is losing his sight, his watch starts to talk. When someone dying makes a promise, who makes sure that promise will be kept? The promise of having a house of one's own and the promise that everything would become different after apartheid. A big welcome to Damon Galgut in conversation with Swedish writer Andreas Norman. So, Damon, what a pleasure to meet. Um, yes, this is quite a multi-layered story with so many aspects of narrative techniques and uh, storytelling and uh, history that you have given the readers. And it's a, it's, a, it's a lovely gift. It's a fabulous novel, The Promise, you've written. So congratulations also, even though you've been congratulated maybe a hundred times to the Man Booker Prize last year. Well, but it's well-deserved. So oh, welcome, thank Damon. You. Thank you, I mean, it's great to be here. I can't see you, but... Hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, a story about um, a family, the Swart family, with a farm, their ownership of a land in South Africa, um, sort of deepens into an examination of, of life and life choices within a structure of uh, apartheid and the violence and the uh, injustices, but also a story that stretches over uh, turbulent times of political change. Um, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful in its way that it sort of centers on four funerals. Um, and I wonder, I mean, immediately when reading it, I, I thought it was a very innovative way of cutting short to to the story, to the, to the core of things. So I wonder, how, what was the genesis of this story? How did you come up with this uh, well, structure of four funerals? Well, in fact, the structure was the genesis. I mean, it was the very first idea for the book. Uh, when I was younger, I guess if I got an idea for a book, it would probably be um, a plot. You know, uh, action seems to matter when you're young. As you get older, um, other priorities take over. So um, really, I was in a phase of my life where I didn't think I was going to write another book. It felt as if the tank was dry. Um, and one afternoon, I was having a lunch with a friend. We had a bit to drink, and he, he's a theatre director. Mm -hmm. um, and he tells a story very well, very vividly, but he's... 10 years older than me, and he's the last surviving member of his family. And he was telling the story of the four family funerals that he's attended, his mother, father, brother, mm -hmm. sister. Uh, and that sounds incredibly depressing, but he was making it very, very funny. Um, not because 
burying somebody is amusing, but because funerals tend to be occasions when families come together, even if they're scattered. Um, and you get the same cast of characters congregating for a day or a couple of days and then dispersing again. Um, and you get certain tensions that play out over and over. So um, I don't think it was that same day, but at some point um, I was thinking about that. And it struck me that um, I've read a lot of novels about families, um, but I haven't read one that approaches the subject in quite this way. Um, and it appealed to me in a number of, on a number of levels. I mean, f firstly, um, I, I have a long ago background in drama. I, I went to drama school and I mm. used to write plays, not, not very well, I don't think, but I, um, it was a passion for a while. Um, and the structure is quite theatrical because, you know, it's, it's like a curtain goes up and then you see this intense little drama and then the curtain drops and then the next time it goes up, you 10 years later maybe. Um, so there's a big gap and that gap is appealing because um, the real subject of this book for me, uh, it's maybe a private subject because, you know, it's not obvious, I guess, on the surface, is time, how, mm. how time changes yes. things, people, um, changes individuals, your body, your face, your morals. Um, but also, in a larger sense, it changes the life of a nation. And obviously, South Africa has been through some very dramatic changes. Right. So, you know, um, the real story, in a way, is in the parts between these sections. But actually, the reader has to imagine what's happened and what's changed. I mean, I can make it clear or suggest it, but I like, I like appealing to the reader's imagination and letting them do some of the work. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm sure we quite like this kind of work that you give us. <laughs> and uh, I, I find it fabulous the way you create a certain sense of vertical between the gaps, as you, as you say. Uh, we are in one sort of state political state and, and emotional state at one point. And then, all of a sudden, things have changed. The landscape of politics and, and the people have changed and they have evolved. And you, you, you manage to, to give us this sort of real sense of development through these sections, I think. Well, you know, books kind of... Um accumulate. They don't really, I mean, not, not with me anyway, they don't arrive as a fully formed package. Mm. So initially my interest was really in the family. I thought, you know, I can look at how time is changing these people. Mm. But then when I considered it, I thought, you know, if you space the funerals out in a different decade, each one of South African history, you, you, can, you can show a larger picture. Um, but I didn't want to analyze it or break it down in, in you know, some, some kind of uh, theoretical way. I, I really just wanted to find moments that suggest change, um, you know, that give a, give a flavor of the larger picture. And, you know, in, in each section, I've tried to pick out those moments. Um, yeah, there's, there's, every section has, has been chosen carefully in, in terms of what's happening in South Africa. I mean, there's this sort of 
later part of the apartheid era, and then all of a sudden the Mandela uh, era of hope and, and perhaps reconciliation, and then sort of the Zuma era and 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 and, and sort of the sort of a stagnant. Well, let's, let's not forget Mbeki and Mbeki. Yes. yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes, I mean, really, there's no political party mentioned, the, yeah. and and mm. the only kind of figurehead in each decade is the South African president mm. changing. But mm. you know, uh, the mood of the country has definitely changed mm. uh, decade by decade too. Yeah, and. and I've been talking about funerals, and, and th there is a strong corporeal aspect. <laughs> this element in the book, this, this, uh, we're reminded of the carnal uh, aspects of being human, uh, and quite vividly. <laughs> I, I think in, in, in a very uh, funny way, in a humorous way, uh, and also sort of there's a bittersweet irony to it. People fart in their sleep, they sweat and stink. We also follow a priest to the loo uh, where he's relieved of his distress, as you as wrote, wrote it. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, if, if, if you think of the real subject of the book as time, we navigate time with our bodies, right? I mean, that's how we, that's how we sail through the world. And, um, you know, the body's not always a pretty place, you know. I mean, it, it might be pretty for a while, but, you know, you, you, you have to deal with the physical realities of things. Right. Um, so, yeah, I know there's a lot of physical detail, and some people have found it hard to, to take. I mean, a writer friend said to me, you know, you have so many scenes in the bathroom, on the toilet. <laughs> and I said, but, you know, this is a... This is an everyday activity for people. Why do characters in books not go to the toilet more often? It's, it's, it's like writers pretend that that doesn't happen. Exactly. Um, to, to me, it sort of brings the characters very much into their flesh. Yeah. I mean, you, 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 you see them more vividly and, and, and experience also the changes over time. I mean, from, from childhood, Amor, we're coming back to the characters a, a little bit later, but Amor, uh, a child, and then all of a sudden, a grown-up woman, and her, her, her sort of body changing as the story develops. Um, sure, I mean, I, um, I, I could write that uh, from a male point of view. It happens to be an uh, experience I'm bitterly familiar with. I mean, men's bodies change too, but I thought for, a for a, you know, just uh, a change of approach, let, let me use a, a female protagonist. But it did involve me speaking to all my women friends and asking them to be very frank with me about how it feels. Yeah, because you, you, you succeed marvelously in, in describing from, from within uh, having the first period or, or uh, sweating all of a sudden uh, when you're 50 plus as a woman, etc. Yes, all, all the way the to me menopause, sort of, basically. Exactly, um, yeah. yeah. Which is not an experience, you know, to state the obvious that I'm, you know, that familiar with. Um, I mean, and it's probably obvious, mostly maybe more obvious to women than, than men, but um, female experience of the world is utterly different to the male one because of these basic bodily functions. Mm. More men should ask their women friends about how it feels, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Was it also a challenge for you as a, as a writer to sort of go into that area of feminine experience? Or? Well, sure. Mm. I mean, you're, you're, yeah, it, it, it would be challenging to, to write from the inside of any experience that's not your own. Um, I'm not sure how you know, well I 
managed to do it, but I certainly, certainly tried to uh, project myself empathetically into what's involved. Mm. There, is, there is one experience, though, I'm thinking of that is sort of unheard or muted in the, in the book, and that is the, the, the voice of Salome, the, the black servant. Uh, I mean, the story is short, in a, described in a short, brutal way. Um, Salome is, is uh, uh, she is promised uh, the ownership of the house she's, she's living in on the farmland. Um, and this, this the promise is neglected, it's put aside, people don't want to talk about it in the Swart family. And for decades, she lives on as sort of a servant, almost like a property of, of the property, and, and uh, as an unheard presence of the family. Um, and we never inhabit her experience, really. Why is that? Yeah, I, I took the decision to do that early on. Um, the book is very much about white South Africa and about white South Africans and, and the psyche of white South Africa, you know, if, if there's an entity like that. Mm. And it's an ugly truth about white South Africa that it does not tend to imagine the inner lives of fellow black South Africans mm. in the same way that it, it might do with, with other white South Africans. Mm. I mean, Salome is a very familiar figure in South Africa. There are millions and millions of women like her. Almost every white household would have at least one black servant in a menial capacity working for them. Um, and, you know, this is very intimate in one way because this person will be washing your underwear and cleaning your bedroom, um, looking after the children. I mean, the, these are very, very close and, and intimate activities. But at the same time, of course, with the party, there's an enormous coldness and distance. Um, and, and in a certain sense, I, it's, it was almost necessary for apartheid to work that people did not imaginatively mm. inhabit the inner lives of these black people in their homes. Because if you did, this, the, the system would be intolerable. So that deadness, that, that unwillingness to imaginatively go past a certain threshold is, is very, very much part of how white South Africa operates. So I took the decision to leave the inner world of Salome unexplored beyond the point where the white characters around her um, are, are not, you know, are likely to go. So um, I, I realized that that might cause um, some ripples. But I, I, I try to build it into the book as a problem, as, as a kind of a question without an answer, by, fill, by filling in the space around Salome, if you like, and leaving this empty place on the map. And to, at various points in the book, m raise it as, as a problem that I hope would be uncomfortable for readers. I mean, what's been interesting to me is that the people who have um, had a problem with that, have, have commented on it, have not been South Africans. 
it's mostly been English commentators who feel that I've failed in some kind of literary duty. But South Africans, and in particular black South Africans, have, have absolutely understood the reason for that. It's, it's an almost visceral understanding that, mm. that doesn't have to be explained. Um, just to reply to you know, the charge that I've failed in a literary duty, it bothers me with a lot of novels that if you perform what's conceived to be the necessary gestures, in other words, I mean, I could have, I could have inhabited Salome's in a, in a world, her life is easy for me to imagine, it's not, it's not out of reach. But what purpose does that serve? It seems to me that what it does is to comfort readers because you feel, ah, well, we did our duty for Salome now. We, we, we've seen who she is, we know how she feels. Um, and so if in the real world, somebody like Salome has no voice, no power, no presence really, which is true, absolutely, in South Africa now, still. Um, well, that's the real world, but in the book, we've solved the problem. So we close the problem, we close the book, and we don't think about it again. Mm. It seems to me a more useful outcome for a book to make it a problem that bothers people, that they carry with them after they've finished reading, and that maybe in some way they might uh, you know, search, search in their own lives for an answer to that question. Yeah, I mean, for me, this silence created an uncomfortable void, which was interesting because I started to think about violence and having a voice or having not a voice, uh, which I think created depth to the novel because I wanted to hear what Salome's point of view was. Exactly. And that was blocked. That was not given to me. And as, as, as you say, that certainly didn't create a feel-good sense of novel, but it created a very sort of interesting way of me joining sort of the Swart family in, in, in a gaze, mm. uh, in a gaze towards the blacks, people, the servants, well, the it, household. I, I guess it, it makes the reader somewhat complicit. Right. And I try to, try to um, bring that to a sharp point. Um, the, you know, there are several moments in the book where the narrator, who is kind of a presence, um, turns around and addresses the reader out of the page directly. And, the, and there's quite a crucial point late in the book where this narrator says to the reader, and if you, if you don't know about Salome's life, maybe it's because you didn't want to know, maybe it's because you didn't ask. Now, you know, clearly that accusation isn't true for all readers, but it is certainly true for some. And I would hope that that's a moment where the complicity of the reader becomes a little bit painful. Yeah, and, and it's, it, it becomes painful and, and also very, very interesting because it's, as a narrative technique also, it sort of breaks the fourth wall in, 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 in terms of theatre and drama. Um, and, and if we stay on, on the, the, the subject of how you structure and write this, this, this book, uh, you have a flow uh, through the narrative where you uh, let us stay briefly with the thoughts and emotions of the characters and move on. And also we move into sort of the, the animal life and for, for, a, for a short while we're, we're, we're with wild animals and then when then go back into the human beings uh, that inhabit this novel. And it's, 
it strike, struck me when I read the book that it has a strong cinematic uh, quality to this way of moving all the, the, the focus, my focus as a reader, uh, from person to person on sort of probing into uh, every person and then going out and then all of a sudden we're looking from a sort of a helicopter view uh, over the farm and then then going back into a character and, and so on uh, in a very elegant and free-flowing manner which, um, which, which made me think uh, in what way has, has cinema and drama um, inspired you or, or giving you uh, sort of uh, thoughts that into this this uh, this project? Yeah, I mean the the cinema um, metaphor is is completely apt. I I had started writing the book uh, in quite a traditional way, um, and 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 it wasn't was not working. Um, it was not you know, coming to life in the way that I needed it to. Um, and fortuitously, I was, I was offered the chance to do a couple of drafts of a film script. And I took the job. And I, it took me away from the book for about eight months. Um, and, you know, I would recommend uh, a diversion into film, film scripts for any, any writer who's stuck because um, the thing that matters least in a film script is language. Um, it's all about the image, right? So if the actor doesn't like your line, they, they'll change it. If the director doesn't like your scene, he's going to cut it. So um, you, you lose a reverence for, for language, which is quite liberating. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, um, because the language of cinema is visual, you, you, you have to approach the narrative uh, from with a camera in mind. The camera is a kind of narrator. So when I came back to my book, I suddenly, I mean, I had this approach in my head mm. and I suddenly saw that if I, if I used the narrator in prose according to the laws of cinema, um, in other words, like a camera, that it would allow me to do all sorts of things. Um, which are not normally possible. So it, it allowed me effectively to cut the way a camera cuts from one point of view to another, from one perspective to another, um, but then also sometimes to pull right, right back and to, and to look at um, human doings from, from a great distance, and then sometimes to move in so close that the, the narrative almost falls into a character's head, so we actually go from third person to first person for a, for a little bit. So effectively, it opened up a whole range of voices and emotional tones, which was what I was looking for without knowing I was looking for it. And um, I, I began to, to play with it. But, but you know, the, the, the narrator, if the narrator is behaving like a camera, the narrator is there all the time. There's no way you can pretend, as most novels do, that you know this is not a story being told to you, it's actually an experience you're having. You're aware all the time of the artificiality of the exercise. So that became a problem. Um, 
But instead of trying to disguise it, I thought the way to go was the opposite direction. It was to emphasize the fact that this is artificial, that this, there is an narrator present. You solve it beautifully, I, I think. I mean, you have this ironic, uh, sometimes quite impish, impish narrator commenting on, on what's going on uh, in, in the book. Well, that, um, that was um, incredibly useful in another way because the, the book obviously centered on four funerals mm. is very death-saturated. I mean, the material is heavy. So the narrator, for me, is the voice of life. It's, it's, the, it's the antidote. It's, it's anti-gravity. So it made the book um, a whole lot lighter and it introduced... In fact, the kind of tone that I was hearing from my friend that first afternoon when he was talking about his family funerals, he was, as I said, being very funny. It, it, it was like this is a living presence, a vital presence, and yes, our lives end in death, but before then, we're alive, and uh, a lot of life is funny, mm. you know? Mm. Even though I, I, I must disagree that some of your funerals in the book are quite funny in themselves. I mean, there's baboon shooting and all kinds of stuff going on, which normally doesn't occur in a Swedish uh, setting, I would say. <laughs> but, but, well, but yes, I mean, uh, it's, it's, uh, you put it so, so beautifully, that's anti-gravity and it's, it's, it's life. Because, I mean, for example, this uh, scene when we uh, accompany the priest... Uh, to the loo, uh, and and um, uh, and all all of a sudden the narrator sort of shows up and says, "This is one way to be sure you're not a fiction. You're taking a shit uh, you, as a priest on the loo. That normally doesn't occur in a, in a novel. So so this is not fiction, <laughs> but yeah. it is fiction. Well, yes, it it opens up a, a certain ironic distance in which yeah, there's yes. there's a lot of playing going on. Yeah, I mean it's actually uh, I think at that moment the priest himself is is wondering and and thinking yeah well. Um, Clearly, I'm not a character in a book because no character in a book ever does what I'm doing now. But it also creates an elegant way of almost Brechtian verfremdung. Right, yeah. I, Brecht was uh, partly in my mind, in fact, um, in, in the writing of the book. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of... A lot of uh, the theatre background actually finally became useful 30 years after I was a drama <laughs> And you talked about breaking the fourth wall. I mean, yeah. that theatres used that as a technique for... for Ages. Yeah. So is film increasingly using it. You you see it in cinema all the time. It's it's strange to me that novels have not relied on it more as a device. One should should follow your example, I think, for sure. Well, I, I tell you what I I find interesting is that when novels began, um, it was an accepted part of the code that you kind of began by acknowledging this is, this is a story being told to you. Dear reader, the story I'm about to tell you. I mean, and then you go into wherever you're going. Mm. But over time, you know, that obligation or, or that part of the ritual has fallen away and, and we're meant to pretend there's a certain sleight of hand that this is real. Mm. Everything is real. Um, it's quite interesting to move back in the other direction because, of course, it's not real. Every story is, is a construction. Yeah, it's a very abstract thing, a mm. book, uh, with all its pros and all its sort of, sort of language that has to be decoded and so on. Sure. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the characters of, of the novel Let, as if they were real people, <laughs> immerse themselves in this um, pretending. 
Um, Armour is, is sort of the, the main person of, of the story in many ways. Um, um, she's the one that from, from, from young age, from 13 years old, um, realizes that there is a promise made to the black servant um, that she will be given the ownership of this house where she lives. And um, this never happens. But the only person in the Swart family that, that sticks to this promise, to, that brings this promise back into the conversation uh, against the will uh, of, of the rest of the family, is Amor. And so when I read it, she was interestingly mysterious to me. I mean, she is, I mean, she is in a way the protagonist. But who is she, really? I mean, she's quite a park, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, she, the central event of her life is when she was sitting on a little hill behind the house when she was six years old. She, she got struck by lightning in a storm. And it seems to have affected her. And definitely the other people in the family think of her as odd. And they think of her moral impulse to do the right thing as odd, too. I wanted to leave that a little bit open. Maybe, maybe she is odd. Um, and there is something about her insistence on, on literally doing the right thing, not stepping into some other arrangement, but literally wanting to follow that through, that is um, a bit peculiar, you, you could say, that she's locked onto this, this one thing. I mean, that leads into a, you know, a larger question, which perhaps you don't want to get into, but I, I, um, I, resist, I resist the idea in novels of the world being divided into bad people and good people. Um, it, seem, it seems it's too easy, really, to play th that instrument. I mean, it's, it's, you, you, you can pull the strings in exactly the right way. It's the sort of manipulation that I think exercises people's feelings and provides, you know, satisfactions, but it doesn't resemble the way the real world works. And sounds like a different genre from, from yours. Yes. I, well, I would, I, I would hope. I mean, you see, I have this theory about the novel, um, that it evolved as a, as a form of um, distraction for the middle classes, and that as such it's meant to be a kind of a mirror that reflects middle class values back to the reader. I mean, I'm irredeemably middle class, to be sure. But, you know, part, part of that exercise of, of comfort and consolation is there's a problem, that's what sets a plot in motion, some kind of rupture in the world, but that problem must be solved. There must be a resolution. Um, and it's comforting also to think that there are bad people and good people and that good people in general are rewarded and bad people are punished. Now. Does that seem like the real world to you? <laughs> I, I mean, no. most, no. most ruptures in the world are not resolved. No. Um, terrible dictators die peacefully in their sleep and good people, you know, often end up with no, no reward at all. No. Um, so, you know, I, th the problem is that to make a novel satisfying, to make it work, you need that language, that structure, um, and you need some kind of resolution. Otherwise, it's, it's just messy. So for me, it's a little bit of a dance between trying to 
trying to provide a resolution that's not too much of a resolution and mm -hmm. trying to show that people do have good impulses because they do, we, we all do at certain, certain times, but that those impulses to do good are not saintly and they do not transform the world usually in a dramatic and absolute way. Mm -hmm. So she, that, she, that was my reasoning. She has a sort of a saintly aura, uh, doing good, for 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 simply for for the reason of doing good, being a nurse, working in a in a, in a nurse ward, uh, taking care of people, so rejecting material all material stuff more or less. Um, but what I find very interesting is the way her goodness at the end transforms into a bitter irony. Because I mean, at the moment when she is in the position of offering ownership of a piece of land to this uh, black servant, Salome. Um, she, she, in that moment, uh, the, the history, the context of, of that decision has changed because there's claims to the whole farmland. So maybe the ownership rights will be uh, taken away from Salome in the, in the same moment that uh, she she's given them. And, and also when... Um, uh, Amor comes to Salome to, to tell her this decision. Uh, there is Lucas, the son of uh, Salome, who is obviously crushed by the violence of apartheid policies. Um, and he despises her. He's just, you're just another white lady, basically. So her, her whole goodness just crumbles uh, into something that is like naive. And, and, and a goodness that is sort of preconditioned by her privileged position. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I'm trying to push the novel in the direction of the real world and the way the real world works. And, mm -hmm. and in fact, this aspect of the novel, the, the story about the house and the promise that it be given to this lady, comes from... Um, an anecdote from from a from a friend, not not the same friend. And I promise you, I don't write my novels based entirely on stories my friends tell me. And but, he has several friends. Uh, yes, <laughs> it's always good to have a few. But um, the situation was more or less the same: that he had become estranged from his family because mm. his mother had extracted this promise from all of them, and they had not followed through for years and years. And he was trying to push it to happen, and. In the end, when he did, this uh, situation occurred that there were other land claims on that, on, on that. So, you know, history doesn't usually provide the kind of clean catharsis that a novel does. It's often compromised and open to questions. So I, um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to bring the novel as close to the, the way the real world operates as I possibly can. Mm. Mm. And, and, and you have a, another character where you almost shows that how the, um, the violence of apartheid is again sort of destroying intentions. Uh, the big brother of uh, Amor, Anton, um, who is in the army, who kills a woman and is sort of has to live with that, with that uh, n sort of nightmare of having actually murdered someone 
for the rest of his life, and and his whole life basically crumbles. Um, and he, he has a he has trying to write a novel. Um, when you write when you read a novel about someone who is trying to write a novel, you usually think, oh, perhaps that's a writer. Although I doubt that in this case. Um, first of all, he he didn't finish it. Um, I what I what I think when I read that is. It's, it's, he tries to write a novel about himself. So it's basically a white Boer person, South African person, trying to, trying an attempt of self-examination that, that fails. So, yeah, I mean, Anton is more or less my contemporary. Um, and he, I mean, I know because... It, it was the same situation with me. The whole system of apartheid was, was meant to place somebody like him at the top of the hierarchy. Mm. With, without any special um, ability or talent, you, you would step into that position. So, obviously, South African history has taken that right or privilege away um, from him, from many other white men, and, and that's fine. Um, yeah, and An Anton is trying to write a, a kind of idealized version, I guess, of his, his own life, which many first-time novelists do. Um, but he doesn't even manage to finish the story, let alone, you know, um, complete that part of the project. But his book is a kind of a, a, an echo of, of this one, of, of mine. I mean, it's also in four parts. There, there are certain aspects of the structure that, that um, are an echo. But I, um, I used his doubts about his book to reflect the doubts I was having in the writing of mine, I guess. I mean, he, he has notes in the margin to himself, which are kind of the notes I would have made in my margin. I mean, is this a farm novel or a family mm -hmm. saga? Is it a comedy or a tragedy? These were the kinds of questions that I was sort of, sort of grappling with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, you... you for me, the two protagonists, the two opposite poles that govern this book are Anton and Amor, the younger mm -hmm. sister. And um, Anton wants his, what he sees as his birthright, the, the future, the power, the world. You know, Amor tries to... Tr Amor doesn't want the privilege and power. And there's part of me that very much doesn't want that either. But what do, you, what, what do you do with the things that have given you that privilege and power? If, if in a system like South Africa's, where race and class are destiny, how do you, how do you give them up? You can't cease to be a white person. You cannot give up being a middle class or an upper class person if you're born into that. So Amor has this problem. Um, and her solution, which is perhaps inadequate, um, is to renounce her inheritance mm. and to distance herself from the, her family and, and to take up work as a nurse in hospitals to try to repair some of the damage to the world. But yes. you could say mm. that you could say that these are the, these are activities which make her feel better, but that don't do not change the situation. That that possibility is open too. Mm. The structure is still the same in a way. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
the, this um, dilemma uh, sort of echoes through the promises, and, and also in 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 another novel of yours that I was very moved by, in a strange room, uh, the 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 homelessness or the this sort of sense, profound sense of rootlessness that that I came to think of when I. Uh, read uh, the promise that property is not just about land and ownership, but it's also a matter of feeling at home, being mm. at home, mm. to say this is my place mm. as a human being. Mm. Uh, a sense of belonging, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I thought quite often in the writing of, of uh, Simone Weil and her uh, essay, The Need for Roots, mm. um, because it speaks to exactly that mm. question. I mean, land, I'm sure I don't need to tell you, is, is uh, you know, a very hot topic mm. in South African politics right now. It's very much the center of the political mm. stage. Mm. Um, but really what people are talking about is much more than land. It's, it's about having a place in the country. I mean, uh, not the countryside. I mean, a, a, a belonging, a sense of belonging as part of the nation. I mean, apartheid's project was to dispossess most of its citizens of um, citizenship. I mean, to to um, to place them outside the country and say you you do not have permission to be here. You you don't belong. So that imbalance has not been righted in South Africa, mm. and the there's a burning need for for people to feel. You know, when, when people say we want our land, really, I think what they're saying is we, we want to belong here yeah. in, a, in an mm. almost spiritual way. Yes, I mean, since the times of Nelson Mandela and the uh, promises of reconciliation and rainbow, uh, there's, there's a lot of doubt, um, I mean, among especially perhaps young South Africans about this. The, the these ideals uh, and and um, that lot, lots have been lost in the in the transition to uh, democracy. Uh, there is still a huge corruption. The unemployment rate is is rising, um, and and uh, there's uh, clashes uh, among people with immigrant uh, status and 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 other groups in society. Um, is there, um, I mean, do you, do, is, what, what are the, the, so the um, when you talk to friends, when you talk to your colleagues, what, what are the issues uh, that, that comes up now? I mean, especially since um, Cyril Ramaphosa uh, was elected president in 2019 and, and he uh, promised a, a new era of hope and re renewal. Um, I mean, what to make of that? Uh, <laughs> As Damon, not a political oracle. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's too big a question in a way. But um, I, I, I hear the words hope and renewal, and I just want to lie down in a corner somewhere because um, it's just talk, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think he, I think he is uh, attempting some kind of uh, regeneration of, of oh. the of the ANC, and um, of course, anybody uh, anybody sensible supports such a project. I, I just think the the realities of uh, 
you know, the political realities at the moment are so overwhelming and we've lost so much time to say nothing of the money that's disappeared mm. that um, we are in a, in a, a just a, an extremely depressed and lost state at the moment. I mean, I, I can tell you the number of state-run institutions that are crumbling. I mean, we are having six hours of electricity blackouts at the moment. You know, the national airline has collapsed. The postal system is collapsing. Um, municipalities are not um, functioning. Most of them are in debt. Uh, roads are not being repaired. I mean, it's, it's, it's all utterly unnecessary because if, I mean, yeah, what it comes down to is if the country had been run in an entirely different way and the money that has been plundered had been spent instead on things like education and housing, mm. we would be in an entirely different place. Mm. So I think the sense of despair in the country is very palpable. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's very gloomy and I'm sorry to sound so negative. And oddly, the only, um, the only up beat note that one can provide is one that isn't very upbeat, namely that the rest of the world's in a terrible state too. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's then go back to some cheerier uh, subject like funerals. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's always death to look forward to. Well, uh, I mean, writing a novel centered on funerals, uh, obviously there is a relig religious um, theme or, or aspect to it. About, but there, there is a, the, you, you really play with, with religious symbols and, and faith in a way. Amor is struck by lightning. Uh, the mother Rachel has converted into Judaism, which has created great controversy in, in, in the family. And, and uh, uh, Amor's father is, is uh, ironically uh, bitten by a lethal snake and, and killed, uh, despite his strong <laughs> Dutch Christian faith. So um, what, what made you give religion such prominent focus in, in your novel? Well, you know, um, once, once I decided that I was going to have four funerals as a structure for the novel, you have to think about religion, right? Because um, religion tends to dominate a funeral. Uh, most families would, would live under the umbrella of a single religion. Um, but I thought just from a literary point of view, I don't want to repeat the same funeral service four times. <laughs> but quite aside from that... Um, I, I could draw on my own background and have some fun with it. I mean, my, my father's Jewish and my mother converted to Judaism when she married him. Um, and for a little while we were, you know, raised in that tradition. Then my mother divorced my father. She married a, uh, a Christian man and we got sent to Sunday school for a few years. And then when she divorced him, she, she gave into Eastern religion and we had new age, you know, coming, <laughs> coming through. Um, and of course, you know, uh, funerals are times when people consider the meaning of life and religion is, is a powerful way to do that. So course, it, it, yeah. it has a certain sense to it. Yeah. Um, and I guess also it, um, it, it conveys something of the variety of white South Africa. I wouldn't want to suggest that, you know, white South Africans are a, a block 
a uniform block because that's absolutely not true. I mean, mm. you know, like most colonial societies, we come from all over, we have different creeds and different influences. So, mm. yeah, um, it, 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 was, it was a way to explore things in a serious and also uh, hopefully a playful, uh, playful way too. Yeah, and then, then there's um, the, um, the characters of Astrid, the, the elder sister, and uh, there's Rachel and who, who, who passes away um, uh, early on in the book, and then um, the, the father. Um, I wonder, uh, they are so vividly um, described or portrayed, um, and, and the, the, the way they're life develops is is sometimes sometimes takes me by genuine surprise in 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 the best best sense um were you while writing uh, the book uh surprised by your sort of impulses on how to develop the characters or or what was there like the unconscious at play here at, at some point well um in some way, or I mean, the, the, these characters are not modeled on my family or any specific family, but um, all of the characters in the book are familiar to me from my, my childhood growing up in Pretoria. Mm. Um, I mean, apartheid was a, a grotesque system, and if you live in a grotesque system, it tends to create grotesque personalities. So, you know, people become distorted in, in strange ways. Um, so, for, you know, some, some non-South African readers have, have responded by saying, well, why, why, have you, why have you created these exaggerated types? I mean, is, you know, they're almost sort of cartoonish and, and uh, sat you know, satirical. Um, but I've been gratified by the number of people who've come to me who, to say, I grew up in Pretoria at that time, and that is how it was. So, you know, there's a sense in which, um, you know, mag magical realism um, as a literary movement is attributed to Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And um, I remember reading an interview with him where he was asked about it, you know, the, 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 this thing, magical realism. And, and he said, in, in South America, it's not magic. That's how it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it depends on your perspective, I guess. Right. Right. Um, but uh, these, these, these are all people I know um, made out of bits and pieces from my childhood. And in a certain way, the book was a, an act of exorcism. I could at last get all these dreadful, dreadful moments and people and uh, pieces of memory are out of my head. Yeah. And centered among these dreadful people, there is this child, Amor, trying to make sense of things, what's going on. She's not being told much, but she tries to understand the world uh, from, from, from her perspective. Perhaps you would like to, to read... Uh, just a tiny bit from, from the novel would be lovely. Well, sure. It's not... Um, because, because the book jumps around so much um, between these different perspectives, it's hard to find a, a sustained sequence, but I, I can take a, um, a page that at least gives a, a little taste of uh, how it feels. By the time the sun goes down, especially vividly out here 
All the visitors have gone and only the family is left. Uem Oki is by now listing a little to the right, weighted perhaps by his uneven smile hitched up only at one end. He and Pa sit in the lounge, watching the news on the TV, which bears bad tidings from all over the country. A limpet mine in Johannesburg, troops in the townships. Every now and then, Pa breaks down and sobs for a while, as if he's moved by the state of South Africa. Opi, Oki just sips and smiles. In the kitchen, Marina supervises the black girl, who has a pile of plates and cups to wash. The way she drags herself around, so heavy and slow, you'd think she's the one who's lost a family member. Unforgivable to be lazy on a big day like this. She has to be pushed along like a boulder. It's exhausting giving orders all the time. Crossly, Marina does a last march through the house looking for leftovers. In the dining room, she encounters Amor, whom she hasn't had a chance to chastise yet. Where did you run off to, she demands, more angry than she knew and finds herself pinching her niece on the upper arm, a flash of genuine cruelty in her fingernails. Ow, Amor says, but doesn't otherwise answer, and Marina stomps on with disgruntled satisfaction up to the second floor. She goes into Rachel's room and hesitates for a moment before closing the windows and curtains. It seems to her there's a faint tincture, an odor on the air. Outside it is night. It is night, the same night, but later. The stars have moved on. Only a cuticle of moon, casting the faintest metallic glow onto this landscape of rocks and hills, making it look almost liquid, a mercurial sea. The line of the main road is stitched out now and then in slow motion by the headlamps of a car, carrying its cargo of human lives going from somewhere to somewhere. The house is dark, except for floodlights fore and aft. Note the nautical terms. Illuminating the driveway and the lawn, and a single lamp left on inside in the lounge. In the various rooms downstairs, everything is mostly inert, except for the occasional scuttling insect, or is it a rodent, and the tiny expansions and contractions of the furniture. Pitter, patter, creak. Crack. But upstairs, in the bedrooms, there's a flickering going on. Well, I'll stop there because I could go on. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much, Damon. It's, it's such a pleasure to, to hear you read and to hear this prose roll out. Um, I'm thinking. Um, for you, writing this prose, when you found the sort of construct of this novel sort of solved some major issues you mentioned earlier, did you have fun? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I decided quite early on that, um, I mean, you, there's a sense in which Writing a novel is solving a series of problems. I mean, you have the big problem, you know, what happens, and then the problems get smaller and more granular, like what is a character called, or how do you get from this point to that point? And, you know, eventually, if you solve all the problems, you have a book. <laughs> but 
I realized early on that one problem essentially is that there, this is not a novel that's driven by plot. There's, there's, there's no plot to speak of. There, there are events, but not a plot in the usual sense. So it became a question for me, what, what will make a reader keep reading? And the obvious answer really was language. This had to be a, a, a book that's driven by language. Um, so I took enormous pleasure in letting the language flow and in, yeah, gi giving a shape. I mean, one of the things that first attracted me to books as a, as a young child was the sense of pleasure you get from language used well. And that seems to me a rule that is worth following into old age. And I've tried my best to, to do it. I mean, Sometimes I guess one's powers fail, fail one, but um, I, I know when I read, I know when I read a book that um, certain books, not all, but certain books where a writer is absolutely in control of the rhythms of a sentence, knows exactly when that word should fall and when to hold back, that um, the, the sense of mastery and um, gymnastic control through language is, is a profound satisfaction. And that's a satisfaction that only books can provide. I mean, I know series are the dominant cultural form at the moment, but no series can give you that pleasure. So, yeah, I did have a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Damon. It was a pleasure talking to you and uh, I'm quite certain that you will use uh, language brilliantly in the future as well and good luck with your writing. Thank, Thank you, you, for, Thank you for this conversa conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this interesting conversation and um, yes, language used well. Uh, we would like to give you a gift. It's an artwork that's also a card game in the literary setting called The Weave Reader by Swedish artist Imri Sandström. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. And also, of course, to Katarina Evelö. Eh, nu kommer det alldeles strax vara bokförsäljning och signering utanför. Men innan ni går vill jag bara påminna om att redan på måndag kan ni lyssna på en annan sydafrikansk författare. Marlene Faniker kommer hit i samtal med Hanna Nordenhök. Och som om inte det var nog, om ni som jag älskar måndagar, så håll utkik efter bokmåndag på vår satellitscen i Vällingby. Stort tack för att ni kom ikväll. Tack Andreas. Tack Damon. Tack. 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 Tack.